you got your Bible, I want you to open them with me. Uh, in fact, I'm going to put a lot of these verses on the screen, and, and if you're a note taker, I would encourage you, as you see the, the text on the screen, just jot those references down in your notes so you can take the time to, to look at them again. Uh, we're going to be looking at a verse in the book of Micah. That's a small little minor prophet in the Old Testament, so I figured I'd tell you right up front so you'd have time to find it. It may take a while. But this is week three and the final week of a series that we're calling The Greatest Show. We've talked a few weeks ago in the beginning about uh, the greatest commandment. And, and I said in that message that God created human beings, not human doings. Now what I meant when I said that is that, that God created you. He loves you. He's for you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. Quite honestly, there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He's for you and he loves you. And God even communicated that love and affirmation to his son Jesus when he said these words from heaven as Jesus was being baptized in the waters of the Jordan by John the Baptist. Some of you remember the story there in Matthew 3. God spoke from heaven. He said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And can I just say to you today at the onset of this message, I don't know, you know where you're from, what your background is, or what you've been told, but I want to declare to every one of you that God loves you. I mean, if you don't hear anything else, maybe that's why you got here and, and endured all of our, our sappy celebration with people you don't even know or really care about. You're here. You dealt with it. This is why. You needed somebody to tell you today, God loves you. He loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. He loves you. But I want to... I wanna, Qualify that statement by saying that this message today is really a message for the church. See, God, lo God loves everyone, but Jesus didn't just say, this is my son whom I love. He said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And here's what I need all of the Christians to hear today. The love of God is not synonymous with the pleasure of God. Just let that thought sink in for a moment. If it meant the same thing, God would have just said it once. He would have just said, this is my son whom I love. He said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Now understand this about the heart of God. He's not looking for perfection. It doesn't require perfection to please him. In fact, the way we say it in our new members class is we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for direction. Because Jesus hadn't even preached the sermon at this point in his life, hadn't worked any miracles, hadn't done any of that, and yet God saw his heart. He saw his intention to serve and honor God. That's why he was standing in the waters of baptism. He was consecrating his life to the will and work of God. And God said, I'm pleased with that heart. And he would say the same to us today. You don't have to get it all right. We ought to say amen there. <laughs> I know we can all testify. We don't have to get it all right, but God is looking not for perfection, but for direction. But you need to know, I need to be reminded today that the pleasure of God is not synonymous with the love of God. You can't earn his love, but you can please him. And I think this is what we get wrong. It's the doctrine of justification. This is a powerful powerful truth in God's word and, and I like to just kind of dumb things down for my sake but I'll share it with you the way I remember it justification means God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned 
That's how I remember what justification is. It's just as if I had never sinned. We looked at a scripture Wednesday night in our Wednesday night serving this last week out of Micah chapter 7 that says that God threw our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What that means is when you're justified, God doesn't see your sin anymore. Anybody glad for that? He doesn't see your sin anymore. He cast them into the depths of the sea. It is just as if you had never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. But can I tell you what it doesn't mean? And this is where we get it twisted. To be justified doesn't mean that God doesn't see my life. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see my actions and my attitude and my choices. And it doesn't mean that those things don't have an impact on my relationship with him. See, some people would just get it all. Oh, I'm justified. I mean, my sins are under the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see him anymore. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter if I'm committed to the house of God or the work of God or, or any, you know, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the family. I'm justified. The love of God is not synonymous with the pleasure of God. If we're not careful, we get a misunderstanding of his steadfast love to mean his steadfast pleasure. And the truth is, and if you think about it, you know this is true. There's all kinds of stories in the Bible where God is not pleased with people that he madly loves. He's not pleased with them. That's why there's a great requirement. What you do in this life, it matters in eternity. It matters. That's what I want you to know today. It matters. Your beliefs, they matter. Your behavior matters too, though. And, and somebody might ask, well, which one matters more? Does it matter more how you believe or, or how you believe? behave? And that's kind of like asking the question, what matters more in breathing, inhaling or exhaling? I can tell you which one matters more. It depends on which one you did last. Right? And our beliefs and our behaviors are both critically important to our relationship with God. That's why James wrote this. James said, faith without works is dead faith. It's not faith. Because if you just keep breathing in, but you don't breathe out, you're not breathing. And if you just keep blowing hot air, but you don't take any in, you're not breathing. And that's what he says about faith. If it's all beliefs and no behavior, not faith. If it's all works, if it's all behavior, but you don't actually have a heart change, you don't believe, it's not faith. And so they're both critically important. Here's the problem. A lot of people just believe that, you know, God loves me, and he does. And, and I put my faith in him, and you should. But they believe that God's will and plan for your life was that you would just hear a message, raise your hand at the end of it, pray a little prayer, repeat after me, and then you're good. The problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, just looking through the scripture, you look at Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Most people that believe in the Bible believe that that sermon is kind of a, it's kind of a nutshell of all of Jesus' ministry. Like this is his ministry. The Sermon on the Mount is pretty much the crux of what Jesus wanted to teach. But when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you know what it's all about? It's not tenets of faith. It's not believe this, follow, you know, follow this doctrine. Believe. No, it's all about behavior. 
It's all about the way that we act, the way that we treat one another, the way that we forgive, the way that we, that we behave as the people of God. Look at the parables that Jesus taught. They're not doctrinal truths. All the parables are, are about interaction. Parable of, of the, the Good Samaritan. Parable of the, the servants. Over and over, all these parables, we could go through one after another. Jesus is talking about the behavior of the body of Christ, not the beliefs. Then you get to the Gospel of John. Now, John is the one gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's the one that really talks about belief. And we could, most of us could quote maybe John's most famous verse, John 3.16, right? John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that whoever believes, right? Whoever believes can have eternal life. He gave his son. Why? For those who believe. And so we go, okay, that's it. I just got to believe and I got to have, and I'll have eternal life. And that is true. Hear me today. That is true, as true as it's ever been. But keep reading. I mean, don't stop at verse 16. Because when you get down to verse 19, he says this, this is the verdict. Now that's like a court term. In other words, the jury has come out of the juror's room. The judge has come out of his chamber. Let's settle the matter. All the things that I said about the love of Jesus and about being born again and about believing, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds, behaviors, were evil. Verse 20, everyone who does evil, deeds, behavior, hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their behavior will be exposed, verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth, that's behaviors. Whoever lives by the truth, not just believes them, lives by the truth, comes into the light so that it may be seen. You can't see somebody's beliefs. That's the problem, isn't it, with a lot of the church? What they see doesn't line up with what we say we believe. But he said, it'll be seen plainly that what they have done, behavior, has been done in the sight of God. So again, I'm talking to Christians today. The, The message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is not raise your hand, repeat after me, say a prayer, and and that's it. That's important. It's significant. Everything begins with a decision. We believe in creating decision moments in this church. We're unashamed to ask people to raise their hand, ask them to stand at their feet, ask them to come to the altar. Why? Because it begins with a decision in a moment. But the message of the gospel is not just that. The message of the gospel is repent. That means to turn. It means to turn away from the way you were living and begin to follow Jesus, to begin to behave according to the belief that you have. That's why John goes on to write in his gospel. In chapter 13, verse 35, he said, But by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another. Now, most of our doctrine comes from the Apostle Paul's writings. When you read his epistles, all of his letters, we get, I mean, Romans is, I mean, what an incredible doctrinal book Romans is. But when you read all of Paul's letters, what you find is that in every letter, he points to the way that we, uh, that our beliefs shape our behaviors. 
He gives us all this doctrine, and then he gives us the response. Now, here's how we live in light of that truth. Why? Because Paul understood that God's love does not equal God's pleasure. Now, let me just give you a, a couple of the statements that Paul said in talking about how our beliefs influence our behaviors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says this, So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it. He was saying, I want to please God in this life and, and, and in the life to come. Whether I'm at home in this body or whether I'm, I'm gone and dead and in the presence of Jesus. Either way, my goal is to please him. I know he loves me or I wouldn't be going to heaven. I know he loves me, but my goal is to please him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he said, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instruct you on how to live in order to please God. What's he, he's saying, the reason I'm giving you these instructions are so that you know how to please God. As in fact you are living. Now we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Let me give you one more. This is Paul, that great theologian who gave us our beliefs. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness but now you are light in the lord how many of you understand he's talking about christians he's talking about people whose lives have been changed by the saving work of jesus then he says live as children of light verse 9 for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth now, now look with me on the screen here at verse 10 he says and find out what pleases the Lord? That's Paul's exhortation to Christians. Hey, find out what pleases the Lord. Why? Because his pleasure is not synonymous with his love. He loves you. He died for you. He saved you. But you need to find out what pleases the Lord. Now, that raises a little bit of a disturbing question. Does that mean, if everything I've said is true, does that mean that God is more pleased with some of us than he is with others? Absolutely. That's what it means. And let me go a little farther and say that sometimes he's more pleased with you than he is at other times. How many of you love your kids? Come on. We should all say yes, we love our kids. Not a trick question. Now I'm going to start an altar call. Man, I got almost no response from there. I think you didn't raise your hand because you knew something else was coming. How many of you are not always pleased with your kids? Okay, all right, now you can preach with me. We, get, we understand this is true. This is true. Yes, he loves us. Is he always pleased? No, he's not always pleased with us. That's why we're ending this series with what we're calling the great requirement. Because like Paul, you and I need to figure out, we need to find out what pleases the Lord, Ephesians 5.10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Let me tell you this about pleasing the Lord, and this is really important. You need to understand that God's expectation of you is based on your opportunity. It's not based on others. God's expectation of you, his pleasure in you is based on your opportunity. It's not based on 
others. So don't start looking to the right and the left and thinking, well, God must really be pleased with them because, boy, they have a beautiful voice on the worship team. They serve on the church advisory committee. He's a preacher. I mean, come on. You know, all these people, you look at the opportunities other people. Man, they went on missions trips. You know, they have more money. They give more than I give. They must be bringing God more pleasure. No, no, no. Your ability to please the heart of the Father is based on your opportunity not based on others. See, the Bible speaks over and over again about the gifts that God gives us by His Holy Spirit. And the, the Bible says this, that each of us are given different gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says this, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one just as He determines. You don't like the gift you got? Take it up with the Father. He determines. The gift. It's up to him. So we just walk in it. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, 4, God also testifies to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Not my will, not your will. The gifts are distributed according to his will. Will. That means this, the gifts that you have or the gifts that you have from God are based on his mercy, not your merit. You don't earn gifts. If you earned them, we'd call them wages. The gifts that you have from God that can bring him pleasure through your life are based on his mercy, not your merit. He's given you opportunities, given you resources, he's given you relationships to leverage for his glory, for his pleasure and his delight. And they're based on the mercy that he's given you. So you don't have to look to the right or the left. This is not a message that we should ever hear and start comparing ourselves with anybody else. Pinning merit badges on ourselves, thinking how much we please God. The reality is God's pleasure is in how you use the gift that God gave to you. Another thing you need to understand is that God rewards faithfulness, not fruitfulness. Now that's really important because maybe you've tried to do something to honor God and in the natural it didn't seem to work. I mean, I, I got to be honest. I, I'm, not, I'm not tooting our horn this morning. Okay, I kind of am. All of us, in five years, we've seen God do some phenomenal things in this church. I mean, God has, has brought resurrection life back into this church. And our heart from the beginning was that God, if the doors of our church closed tomorrow, would anybody in this community care? That thought keeps me awake. I want this church to matter because we're salt and light. And everybody needs light. And I think about what God's done in the last few years, and it's amazing. But can I be honest? I've got some friends that are in ministry, and I would say they're every bit as qualified as I am. They're probably every bit, if not better, preachers than I am. And they're serving in a context. They haven't seen the kind of results we've seen. And they're scratching their head, and they're reading the books, and they're listening to the same blog, uh, you know, podcast. And they're trying to figure out a strategy, what's going to work, and it's just not working. And we need to remember that God does not honor fruitfulness. He honors faithfulness. Be faithful. Be faithful in what you're doing. Think about Noah. He preached for 120 years. He didn't have a single convert. I mean, come on. 
And yet the Bible says God's favor was on him. Jeremiah got up to prophesy. They arrested him and threw him in a pit. I mean, he was not popular, not fruitful in his ministry, at least from man's perspective. But God honors faithfulness. God loving me is not the same as God being pleased with me. He's gifted me with certain abilities, certain opportunities to do things, to please him, to serve him. And the reality is one day I'm going to stand before God. You're going to stand before God. And I'm going to give an account on that day for the deeds done in the body. That's scripture. So, so the question is, what does the Lord require? What is he looking for? What does he want from me? Here it is, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Hands down, the most famous verse that Micah ever penned. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And here's the question. And what does the Lord require of you? And here's the answer. To act justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I'm not going to be long in talking about these three things, but I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to deposit these words into your spirit this week. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And so more than I can articulate in the time we have today, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. Why? Because the Lord requires these things of us. And He hasn't set us up for failure. He set us up for faithfulness. And so these are the things He desires. Number one, act justly. I don't have to tell you this. You know this is true. But how many would witness to the fact that we live in a culture of entitlement? I mean, every, everybody's screaming out for justice for them. They want what they deserve. You know what, what's interesting is, is no one that's guilty is crying out for justice. <laughs> have you noticed? Only the people that have been done wrong, only the people that have been offended, only the people that have been looked over. It's only when we feel offended or hurt that all of a sudden we cry out for justice. Everybody wants justice. Nobody's crying out for punishment, right? Nobody's saying, boy, I wish they would just give me what's coming to me. I wish they would send me that tax bill I never paid. No, no, no. We're good. We're good with getting overlooked if it falls in our favor, right? I mean, we're okay with that. Oh, I didn't order extra uh, fries, but hey, hallelujah, the favor of the Lord. Handfuls on purpose. <laughs> Blessings falling in my lap. We don't want justice. You don't want to circle back around the drive-thru. Oh, you gave me an extra Happy Meal. No. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. Right? Nobody's crying for justice there. But here's what, here's what I love about the Word of God. He didn't say ask for justice. He said act justly. It's, it's on you. He, he didn't say... He didn't say demand justice. He said do justly. In the Cambridge Dictionary, justice just means this. The condition of being morally correct or fair. 
Don't demand that. Do it. Don't ask for it. Act it. Condition of being morally correct or fair. And here's the reality. You can act justly in all kinds of situations. More than we have time to even begin to try to unpack today. Isaiah was a prophet who was much more popular and well-known than Micah. But they actually prophesied at the same time. Even prophesied to the same people. And Isaiah had a, a verse that was very similar to this one. He said it like this in Isaiah 1, 17. He said, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Basically what he was saying is, Treat people the way that God would treat them, right? That's what he's saying. He gives a couple great illustrations, but he's saying treat people the way that God would treat them. You say, well, how would God treat them? Well, Isaiah may have been thinking about Deuteronomy, the commands that God had given through Moses. Because the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, how God would treat people. It says he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and giving them clothing. Now, I was really tempted today to come with a list of stats. I mean, I was really tempted to just pepper this sermon with, you know, front page news and, and cultural events and hot button issues to kind of get everybody on the edge of their seat and get you thinking about how this applies today. But the truth is, you can act justly in all kinds of of ways. You can act justly the way that Isaiah said by defending the oppressed and taking up the cause of the widow and the orphan or the foreigner that's residing among you. You could act justly by lobbying on Capitol Hill, but you can also act justly by treating your kids fair in your own home. He's talking about how we live this thing out. And, and just like the Great Commission we talked about last week, in the same way, the great requirement is very specific about the mission, but it's very generic in the message. He doesn't tie us down to say, this is how you act justly. He just says, act justly. Act the way that God would act towards people. And then there's a balance to this requirement. And this is what we need to find. Here's the balance. In your acting justly, Love mercy. Love mercy. Because here's what happens when, when we as believers beat the drum of justice without a love for mercy. We lose the dynamic of the heart of God. Right? We become, we become bigoted. We just become proselytizers. We just become the antagonist when we just beat the drum of justice and we forget to love mercy in doing it. Now, you got to act justly, but in acting justly, love mercy, because this is the paradox of the heart of God. He is just, but he loves mercy. He is truth, absolute, but he's also full of grace. There's this paradox that he's, he's holy, but he's holy father. So he lives in unapproachable light, and yet he invites us to come in. It's like that story in John chapter 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus is just. And so when they drag that woman out and the 
Pharisees say, the law commands that we stone such a woman. They're challenging Jesus. They're challenging Jesus to say, are you just? Are you going to uphold the law? Because if you say, oh, we, we, we don't believe that anymore. Well, then you're not just. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, do, he doesn't dismiss the law because he's just, but he loves mercy. And so he says, essentially, yeah, that, you're right. That is what the law says. So let the one who hasn't sinned throw the first stone. Ooh, that's loving mercy. See, he's full of, he's full of truth. That's why when all those accusers, one by one, put their stones down and left, Jesus looked at her and he said, where are your accusers? She looked around and she said, there's no one. There's no one, sir. Jesus is full of grace. He said, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. I don't condemn you, but here's truth. Go and sin no more. That's what he said. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Aren't you glad you serve a God of mercy? Not just a God of justice. Aren't you glad you serve a God of grace, not just a God of truth? There's a balance in all those things. You know, I love the verse in Lamentations 3, 23. It says that God's mercies are new every morning. Aren't you glad you got up this morning and mercy was new? God's not holding yesterday over your head. Would you just think about this? What if the new mercies that God has for you every day are not just mercies for you, but they're new mercies for you to give towards others? We just think about it. What if you woke up every morning and not only did you have a clean slate with God, but everybody else had a clean slate with you? I mean, come on, that's a whole nother level. I mean, that's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then the very next verse says, don't give the devil a foothold. See, the way we give the devil a foothold in our life is by hanging on to yesterday's anger, yesterday's frustration. Because you received new mercy from God, but you didn't give it to anybody else. See, isn't that funny about the church? How we love justice for everybody else, but mercy for us. We'll act justly to you, but we want mercy. It doesn't work that way. Come on, the pleasure of God is aligned with the heart of God. What do you want from me, God? This is what the Lord requires. Do justly. Act justly, but love mercy. And in your doing justly and in your loving mercy, he says, walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with God. You know, humility is what keeps us from depending on our own strength. Humility is what, what keeps us acknowledging the Lord in all of our ways so that he can make our path straight. You remember the story, we won't go there for time's sake, but you remember the story in Joshua 7? This is right after the battle of Jericho. I mean, Joshua has had his first uh, assignment as the leader of Israel. Moses died, Joshua steps up, they cross over the Jordan, they march around the walls of Jericho, once a day for six days, seven times around it on the seventh day, they give a shout, they blast the ram's horn, and the walls fall down. They rout the enemy of this huge, impenetrable city. But chapter 7, next chapter, what happens? There, there's another little small town up the road. It's called Ai. And Joshua, he doesn't pray about it. He doesn't consult the Lord. He doesn't ask any questions. He just sends his spies out there. He says, well, you know, now that we tackled Jericho, I guess we ought to knock this little town off the block next. 
And, and listen to these verses in Joshua chapter 7. Verse 3 says, when, when they, the spies that he sent out, when they returned to Joshua, here's what they said. Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Just send two or 3,000 men to take it. Don't weary the whole army, for there's only a few people that live there. So that's what Joshua did. It says, so about 3,000 of them went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. Why? They stopped walking humbly. See, when, when God said, I'm giving you this city of Jericho, boy, Joshua called a prayer meeting. How is this going to happen? How is this going to go down? God, we need you to move. If, if you don't show up, we'll never be able to take this city. But once they got a win under their belt, oh, we got this. We, we, we know how to do this. You know what? We don't even need to take the whole army. Let's just take a few to go up there. Let the rest of them rest. And so in your acting justly and in your loving mercy, God pulls us back to a place of dependence upon him that we can never get away from. And he says, walk humbly with your God. That's why Jesus said, those who exalt themselves like Joshua did, they will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted what God wants to do in your life. He wants to elevate you. He wants to exalt you. He wants to lift you up. Why? Because you're the salt of the world. You're the light of the world. There is no other church. We're the church. Capital C. We're the representation of Jesus in the earth. He wants to exalt us. But when we get prideful, when we get arrogant, when we beat the drum of justice and we forget to love mercy, God lets us walk on in our pride without him. And we defame his name. But when we humble our hearts before God, and we love mercy, we love giving people the grace they don't deserve, and we stand for truth, and we act, we don't just demand justice, we do justice. God smiles on us. He elevates us. He exalts us. He lifts us up. He says, this is my bride, spotless and pure. This is the one I'm coming back for. This is the church. Don't you want to be that kind of church? Let me give you these final thoughts as, as we get ready to pray. The Bible speaks about judgment for the church. And I just believe it's important that we don't forget that. There is the great white throne judgment. The Bible talks about in Revelation where he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to judge people according to their sins. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you believe in him as Lord and Savior of your life, he's forgiven you of your sins. Good news, you don't have to experience that judgment. Not for you. Because your sins have already been paid for. They've already been dealt with at the cross. But there is another judgment in the word of God. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And, and the picture that Paul gives of the judgment seat of Christ is a picture of the Olympics. The Greek games that happened in Athens is what he has in mind when he talks about this judgment seat. So it's not like a, a judge sitting in a courtroom. It's, it's, it's more of a reward seat for the believer. It's when you step onto that podium and you get the bronze or, or you get the silver or, or you get the gold. It's a moment where you don't fear being cast out. You're not going to be disqualified. You're already in the winner's circle. But now you have an opportunity to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and to receive 
the reward from the works done in the body. Now let me read what the word of God says about that moment. If anyone builds on this foundation, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. The foundation he's talking about is Christ. If you have a relationship with Jesus, this is the foundation you're building on. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. He's giving a, a, a contrast here. Gold, silver, costly stones, those things are not going to perish. They're not going to tarnish. They're going to endure. Wood, hay, and straw, those things would be burned up in a fire. He says it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. He's talking about Christians here. He's talking about our lives on that day. And then he says in verse 14, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as only one escaping through the flames. So what, what does the Lord require? What does he want from me in that day? He wants to say, well done. Good and faithful. Not well believed. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now come in. Come in. I'll make you master over many things. When your life and my life is tested by the fire, when all is said and done, was more said or was more done? This is what the Lord requires. And he requires it for his glory in your life and in my life. I want to ask you to stand today all over this room. I know this message is a strong word. But it's a healthy word. It's a word for each and every one of us because the application of this word is every day, every relationship. So I want to just pray for you today, and I want to ask the Holy Spirit to just illuminate our hearts and our lives for a moment. Would you just bow your head with me? First of all, God, I just pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, anyone here today that, that isn't saved, God, that they would believe, that they would make a decision today to trust you, to be the Lord of their life, to have confidence that your plan is the best plan, that you'll bring them joy, that you'll bring them peace, that you'll fill the empty spaces in their heart and life, that nothing and no one else can fill. And God, I pray today for the church, God, that you've called to be a city on a hill. God, may we lean in today to the requirements that you have placed before us because you've called us to be the greatest show of God in the earth. We're the ones that embody your nature. We're the ones that have the fruit of your spirit in our lives. We're the ones that hold out the hope of salvation through Jesus. So God, make us a great, a great show of your love. Give us the integrity and the courage to stand and to act justly 
Give us the compassion and the grace to love mercy. Lord, give us the humility and the soft hearts to walk humbly with our God. In Jesus' name, amen.